what a really cool story. I mean, just even the way you describe that, I think is super powerful. It just gives you permission to go have fun. I think that might be the point of everything I ever make. <laughs> um, because we don't go for fun enough in life. It's like you become an adult and then you either are powerful and that's supposed to satisfy you, which I don't know if it will satisfy me or, or you're just like, um, you know, just like, sorry that you have so much to do. It's like, when does fun become a thing that we pursue? Like who in the world as a kid was like, I want to grow up to be whatever. And in their mind, they imagine them just like dreading every freaking day. Like to me, fun is the point because you don't get trophies in life. At the end, no matter whether you had a great time or a bad time, no matter whether you were the champion and you conquered everything or you like were totally falling apart, you die in the end. So there's no trophies, which means to me, you might as well have a good time. Well, you do get (laughs) trophies, but they're kind of lame. They don't extend your life, is my point. They don't extend your life. You and all your trophies get buried in the end. And your trophies mostly go into boxes while you're alive because they don't make actually great decorations. (laughs) Exactly. This is The Interesting Lives of Normal People, and in this episode, we talk to Stephanie LaFlora, a serial entrepreneur. She is the producer of this music that you're hearing, and she's seriously dope. I don't say that lightly because that's not something, that's not a word that I usually can get away with saying, but it's really true. She's from Chicago and works at a tech startup in Boulder. She is fascinating. She's got sass. She's edgy. She grew up as the daughter of touring musicians. We'll talk a little bit about that. She has some great and sobering insights about working as a black female in a tech startup. She also has had quite the portfolio of entrepreneurial and passion projects from swimsuit wear to a hairstylist project. They're amazing and we'll get into that as well. But my personal favorite is the part where we talk about her thoughts on the social justice movement and particularly the explanation and expectations for people of color when they both succeed and fail. It's really, really good stuff. So this conversation has really resonated with me and I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of the show that does not have a name quite yet. Big uh, show. No, Cakewalk. It's not Cakewalk or Jake show. Um, <laughs> Today, we are excited to have on this episode, Stephanie LaFlora, a serial black female entrepreneur. And she has done a lot of things. She, we've been friends for a while, very close with Ryan Holdeman. Um, and Steph, we've hung out, I know, several times, but it's been a while. So it's really good to see you and to chat with you a little bit more in depth. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Um, as you just kind of said a minute ago, there's nothing off limits. And you have accomplished a lot um, from a swimsuit company, a swimsuit line, um, to producing music, uh, to working in Chicago Fire. Is that correct? Do I have that right? So many things. Yep. Maybe you want to add, maybe you can talk for a second about like, what are some other things that just kind of add to the list? Let's just make a really impressive list of things oh and we can start breaking it apart. Just don't be <laughs> shy. Don't be shy. I'm not sure I have an impressive list. I have just basically tried to do what I want every day of my life. And that has included some random things. Um, I've gotten lucky a couple of times in ways that was very strange. Like the Chicago fire thing happened. Literally somebody just called me one day on like a Friday and was like, Hey, we want you to come, um, for an interview tomorrow to this job for Chicago fire, which just so happened to randomly be to work directly with Dick Wolf, which is like the greatest TV producer of all time. So like literally I just got a phone call for that. And it was somebody I had worked with previously that referred me, but Hadn't had a conversation with him, wasn't even thinking about TV. So I just had like a lot of things like that happen in my life that is very random, but I'm always down. I never say no to anything that is like a new opportunity. I won't, even if I'm totally 100% not qualified, can't do it, shaking in my boots, feel like I'm a pass out while I'm trying. I don't care. I say yes. Um, I got to sing on stage at the Staples Center in LA, completely sold out. Get out of here with Hillsong <laughs> and my mother, cause my mother used to sing with Hillsong um, for like 10 years. They toured the, the world together along with Joyce Meyer, the preacher. And um, so because of that, I toured with them sometimes just in the summer or whatever. And uh, one time 
we're standing, I'm backstage because I'm always backstage with them. And they, they always, I mean, they, they were always packed out these crazy arenas and stuff like the Staples Center, which is insane. Um, but I was just used to that. Like, that's how I grew up. I just grew up with packed stadiums like that and my mother singing and I just travel with them. So one time I'm backstage and um, uh, Hillsong, one of the people were just like, hey, uh, you know the song, right? That we're about to sing. And I'm like, yeah, of course I know this song. I've been here like <laughs> since I was a baby. And uh, they were like, they were like, why don't you just come on stage? I'm not kidding. This is like they're walking <laughs> on the stage. Like I was there. I've never done that in my life. Old I was probably like, I was in college because it was at the Staples Center. Okay. And I met them there because I was already in L.A. I went to college in L.A. So it was, I was probably 19. And so, you know, I have an ego. I'm not like completely clueless here. And, uh, you know, I'm just there. Like on, I'm in school and I just came, you know, while my parents were in town working. And uh, I was like, sure, whatever. And I just went out there. And I just like had the best time ever. I mean, a completely packed out stable center. So I just do things like that. Like I'm, I'm completely open. Like I didn't know if I was going to sound bad. I didn't think about that. All I thought about was this is going to be so fun. And that was it. Yeah, you said yes on that. Uh, hey, you want to make a baby question? And that one has lasted longer than just the one night. You know, I'm still paying for it. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I mean, not the your truth. baby. People don't tell the truth about that. It's cool. I do. Um, before we go any further, maybe you can back up a little bit and just kind of give us a little bit of backstory on, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, kind of how you actually got again, you can kind of go high level. How did you actually get to where you're at now? And, and then, you know, end with kind of what do you do now? And then we can kind of dive into some of those different experiences that you've had. So I think some of the core things about my childhood and growing up life that is attached to my identity and that you may see when you meet me are one at a very unorthodox childhood. My parents are both musicians. They've been musicians full time my entire life. So they are musicians, you know, like they're up late, they're traveling the world, they're, they have an alternative lifestyle, they're very creative, they're very anti like working for other people, you know, doing the grind, like they are musicians, they are fully creative people, like that's who they are. So I was raised by them. And um, I think that that allowed me to always feel like the world was always bigger than most people see it, because my parents you know, they see the world and like these, all these dimensions and they're just nonstop creatives. Um, and they're uncompromising about, um, you know, their creative life. And I don't always agree with all those choices that are made in that uh, decision, but I do respect their understanding of what they want and their ability to just like go for it in life. Like, crazily like it doesn't make any sense there's no way you're going to succeed they go for it anyway and they actually nail it a lot like way more times than makes any sense you know so I think that's always made me feel like magic is real if that mm. makes sense you know like I've seen it I've seen it over and over again um even in like in a spiritual way which I'm not particularly religious but it, it, I've been exposed to that my parents are pastors and there's you know I've I've witnessed miracles like in real life. Like I've seen it with my eyes. Like, I know that's a crazy thing to say on a podcast, but it's true. It's like, it's something that I've experienced in my life. And even not being a super religious person, like the combination of having these creative, almost like traveling circus parents, which, you know, in a way that's how I felt as a kid um, with this, also this like very deep spiritual, it just made me always feel like magic is just a thing. And mm. I have to go for magic and magic doesn't make sense, but it feels good. And so I think I've always been chasing that my entire life um, as a result of that upbringing. And then just random things happen. I, you know, in terms of like the resume version of the story, it's like I used to work in publishing in Chicago. That's where I'm from. Um, it's where I get my edge. <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> you know, I love that. Um, from Chicago or from publishing? <laughs> from Chicago. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right. Sure. I was like, I didn't know publishers were such edgy people. Oh, they're so hard, man. Oh, my goodness. So I went to film school because magic, right? You know, and I love telling stories. And then um, I got practical and I went into publishing. And that was a pretty interesting experience in a bajillion different ways. But it started to help me refine what I was after and I wanted a more flexible, creative environment where I felt like I could really 
um, where like I felt like I could just let myself freestyle a little bit in life and publishing didn't feel like that. And so I started getting really into startups and just thinking about startups. Publishing, I feel like is a really broad term. Like what type of publishing? Um, so it was a Christian publishing company. Um, and okay. they, they taught, um, it was all, all of the materials were like Sunday school curriculum, like Bible okay. scriptural, um, you know, breakdowns and very technical in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it just was like, it was a natural fit. I'm a writer, whatever. So that's kind of what I did. And um, it was way too rigid for me. And so I thought the startup world looked like a place with Wild West. Like people in startup world, they just do what they want. Like if, as long as you're smart, you can dress how you want, you can be how you want, you can have your own personality. Um, there's not a lot of rules. Like you can break rules a lot. Um, it's fast in terms of just, you know, iteration. And so it just felt like me. Um, so I was attracted to that, but I didn't do anything. I was just reading about it. And then I got a call randomly. This is like another time that that happened in my life where it was like, Hey, do you want to come fly out to Colorado and, um, (laughs) and interview for this job? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but okay, sure. I'll go out there. I don't know what this is about. Never been to Colorado in my life, but I'll go. And so I went, um, out there and it just felt right from the beginning it made no sense to my brain I was engaged in Chicago I didn't know how I was going to convince my husband to move to Colorado but I just knew it was the right thing to do um and so he came out here and we we saw the place and it just we just knew it was the right thing to do so that's what we did next uh you know it's just it's been one thing leading to the next and so since I've been in uh the startup world I still had an itch that I couldn't scratch right I'm still looking for magic like startup is closer to magic than, um, you know, Christian publishing. That definitely felt like that to me. But it did. It still doesn't, still doesn't, because I'm still here now, but it still doesn't feel like magic to me. Um, you know, it's missing the wonder. Like even, it's interesting because even the tech industry is starting to become so formulaic. It's becoming, like they aren't taking chances anymore. There's not the same kind of risk taking happening to me right now in tech. Um, you know, because people have made so much money, it's become so big, it's become political, like it's just not as cool anymore. It's like anything that becomes mainstream loses its original flavor, you know, it just does. And so I'm interested now to kind of not do that, you know, understand the rules that have been created in the tech industry that make it great, but not necessarily constrain myself to like how somebody else did it. You know, you, you sort of summed up that the startup world hasn't delivered um, and well, isn't presently delivering the magic, but I'm curious about this transition. Like, okay, eight years ago, when you started in the, in the tech startup context was, did you find more? What was, what was there that you were real? You know, you had an imagination for what that magic would be like, but what was real when you got there? I think that for the first time I was surrounded by people who, their vision of their life was bigger than they presently were. And that was what was driving them. I think in other industries that I've worked in people, and it's no diss, like I think every way you choose to live your life is fine. And there's different priorities that people have, but I feel like everyone was just trying to either, you know, just have a good job, something that, you know, has all the checks, all the right boxes or makes the right amount of money. But there wasn't like a, a personal attachment to the work that you were doing and also a vision for you know the way the world could look different you know that's just like a totally different thing to me than just wanting to be good at a skill it's about me trying to take the thing that i imagine and make it real in the world and to me that's so much bigger so that's what i loved about tech Mm. all the people there um you know are like that it was like i had found my tribe in a way um but then I didn't because like the truth is that I feel like all of my personality characteristics makes tech my tribe, but I'm also a black female. And so it's like as much as like the, the, the attributes of the tech world fit everything that I feel like I am, it's difficult for me to like really um, have that same, you know, I guess brotherhood, sisterhood, community, whatever. Like I don't, it just, I don't gel quite with the community the way I want to. The way I think I should, you know, just based on who I am and what I care about. What is the disconnect that you feel or the lack of gelling, as you called it, between, you know, black female and tech startup? Gosh, that's good. 
Yeah, it's everything actually. Okay, so on the on the change you want to see in the world, um, gosh, tech has gotten so like capitalistic at its core, mm-hmm. and I think tech at its best is truly innovative. And like, I just think we we are not the bar is not high enough for us as a society if the greatest achievement is to be super wealthy in a nation that's also super wealthy and has so much disparity. Like if I'm going to be innovative and I'm going to think of myself as like the greatest innovator in history or some shit like that, which is not something I think about myself, but these people do. You telling me your best idea that you ever came up with still means that all these people got to be homeless, poor on drugs. Like what, how is that the, your best idea? What a low bar you set for yourself. Mm. And so on that, in that sense, I think that, you know, black people, um, I mean, I'm not trying to speak for every black person, but um, some I believe and I'm proud of about black people. Um, black people are forced to think about everybody, mm. right? Like they have to, because I've got to think about myself. And, you know, the average black person has a pretty wide range of, you know, social economic groups friends family members all that because even if you grew up pretty well i did um you know you're only a few generations from poverty like everybody right that's the that's everybody so you don't get to have you know a family reunion of everybody balling out of control that shit doesn't exist i mean maybe feel like beyonce but even beyonce is only able to do that um because she paid for everybody else's houses and stuff it's not like everybody came up she came up I feel like the tech startup world, part of dreaming big and all that is having a uh, fearlessness of failing. In fact, it's actually having the value of failing as fast as possible so that you can invalidate an idea as fast as possible so you can move on to the next idea that might be valid and that there's a there's a privilege of opportunities, of a pl- plethora of opportunities that is already assumed in that kind of mentality. If you're trying to fail as fast as possible so you can move on to the next opportunity. The, the starting point was there's a ton of opportunities out there that I need to move through and that that's a bit of a white privilege concept. What do you think about that? Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, I feel like, gosh, it's so difficult to even say it out loud because, you know, I think we program ourselves to believe that no obstacle is real and that's the only way we can like keep moving because we have to feel like we have to have confidence that we can overcome something. Um, But I think that it's so difficult to forget failing. (laughs) Like really, like it's so difficult even when you've succeeded as a black person, like you crushed it, whatever the goal was. And it's undeniable. It's not like something that I need to convince myself of, I know. And then, I try to get what seems to be commensurate with that success, a raise, promotion, a title, a access, a, the ability to be heard. And that feels like it's too much to ask. That is what it is. It's not even, forget the failure. Like failure is like, you know, I'm not going to be afraid of failure. I'm trying. But at the same time, I don't feel like I get anything when I fail. Like when I fail, I feel like, okay, I'm starting from the bottom again. Like I don't, it's hard for me to even take a failure without feeling like I've set myself back so far. So it's like failure is so far from my mind. It's like, how do I get what I need when I succeed? That is the hardest thing for me to even attempt to do. Cause if it's so rarely met with even a, a any care, <laughs> like, it's like, Oh yeah, you did that thing. So, and you know, like it's really hard, like for real, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's difficult and you have to really be strong, like beyond. All I'm trying to say is that I think that when you, even when, a, when you succeed, I think as a black professional, you don't feel like you have the right to ask for even what the success will give you in return. So failure feels like entirely to, um, it's just like you have no chance. You don't expect them in any way if you fail you expect for life and people around you to crush you you do not expect any kind of empathy you just don't as a black person so you i think i think you so what i'm saying is that i think that in your success even the hardest part that's most realistic is even asking for what you think you deserve is what i'm saying stuff does that feel um 
specific to the tech space or, or would you say that's more of like being black in America? I don't know. I think that's a question I've been asking myself and it's a conversation I've been having with my friends and it feels like it's probably just being black in America. But I think that the reason why um, being in the tech space feels still like maybe it should have been safer is because it felt like such a character's welcome kind of thing. Like you could be a dropout, you could be a college dropout and you know, at the time when that was okay with tech, that was not okay anywhere else. There was no other industry that would accept that. And, you know, especially ones that paid the way that they did. And so it was almost like it was the industry for rebels, you know, and I would think that would include, you know, minorities mm. and it didn't. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's like everything else, but it just, I guess in my mind, you know, looking for magic, I thought, oh man, it's some magic over there. I think they'll accept me. I think that's maybe the place where I could go that would be safe. Mm. And it wasn't. It wasn't any safer than anything else. And that surprised me. I watched the movie Queen and Slim. And just quick background on that movie. It is it is a, a couple out on their first date. They sort of met on like a Tinder sort of a thing. Uh, black male, black female. They get pulled over. The date goes poorly. They get pulled over on the way home um, by a white officer it turns into an altercation. The officer sort of accidentally ends up dead by his own gun. Um, and so then the couple get, you know, heads out on the run. It's a very intense movie. But I watched the extra, you know, kind of like the extras after the movie was over. And it was directed by a black woman and written by a black woman. And they made an, they intentionally cast a black female that was an up and comer, like that nobody had heard of before. And their point was, because there aren't very many opportunities for new black actresses coming on the scene. And I, I stepped back after that and I, the, base, the best way I could break it down in my head was if there's a hundred new leading roles per year for actor, for up and coming actors in films, I don't know what the actual numbers are. These are made up, but I was like, let's say 50 of them go to white men or white young men and like 20 of them go to young white women. And then, you know, on down, on down the list till you get to how many of those are left for young black women. Um, and it's, you know, what, two, one point one, I don't know. But um, I think that's what it occurred to me that, that, and there's a bunch of reasons, there's a bunch of components to that, including that if you've got more white men initiating the films or writing the films, it's stories about white men. And then there's this justification that it's like, if this is a story about a white man, we cast a white man in it and it's this whole roll down. But that that's some of the, I think that that's another industry that has a similar experience where it's basically the, the high, the hierarchy is so stacked with people that are not black and definitely not black women that there's just a bunch of ways that affects the on-ramp to the full hierarchy. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think everything is like that right now. And that's what this year is about. Um, I'm amazed, honestly, at what's happening. It's hard to even process it, but it feels like we're asking for that to change in every industry and significantly and without apology. And that's some different kind of blackness. I haven't seen that before. Hmm. I mean, we're changing. The whole country's changing, but not just white people. Black people are changing too. Black people are seeing for the first time. I don't know why we see it right now. I don't know if people just got fed up enough. I'm not actually not sure what's happening, but I think that for the first time in my life, I'm seeing black people actually ask for equal. We've never done that. We just asked for it to be not as bad. Mm. And that is powerful. That's something, that's something different. And I'm proud of it. I'm so glad that's what we're doing. I don't know what the hell happens from here, but regardless, it's good. I'm pretty sure of that. How amidst that do you like keep looking for magic? And because um, I, I could see myself in that situation just being like, there ain't no magic, man. Like, it's just like, <laughs> I have my moments. <laughs> hustle and grind. That's all you got. Um, and maybe you get lucky sometimes. Um, so I'm curious how you like, how you kind of keep that hope. There's a hopefulness in that. And I'm curious how you keep that fire lit. And then the second part of it is like, so where, where do you feel yourself looking for magic now? It's not the tech space. Where do you, where do you find yourself searching? Or, or I mean, I know you're, you are doing things right now. So maybe you want to say some more about that, but um, those are some questions I'd love to hear you talk, speak to. Yeah. Um, I keep the magic. I think it's just in who I am, honestly. 
I don't know if it's something that I actively do. I think it's just, I have a really low pain tolerance. I always tell people that because I think it's true about who I am. I can't, I can't do it. And I've had a lot of really not great things happen in my life. So it's not like I have a low pain tolerance because I was precious my entire life and never affected by anything. That ain't it. I um, have a low pain tolerance because I just would rather find the joy. I just always would. So anything that I can do, anything, whatever it is, you know, anything I try, I just try things until something makes me feel better. If I don't feel good, it's like, all right, I'm going to draw and then I'm going to make a song. And then, you know what? I had this idea for this app. I'm just going to make that app. And then I had this and, um, you know, and I see things in the world and I'm like, what if it was this way? You know, what if instead of uh, women feeling ashamed about wearing swimsuits after they have a baby, like what if, what if they just, there were just really beautiful ones for them to hide the things they want to hide and not feel bad about it and just still feel pretty, you know, and what, you know, like all these different things. Um, I'm just always thinking about. So I find the magic by chasing the thing that makes me curious. And then I just do it, whatever it is, I figure it out. And I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna try to do this. And so, um, gosh, what was that a year ago? Um, I made a swimsuit line mainly honestly, because I was trying to learn about drop shipping. I had heard about it and I was just curious about it. And so I was like, okay, let me figure out how this works. And the best way I learned is to just do it. So I was just like, okay, let me just make the shop. I lit. This is literally what I did. I'm just gonna make a shop. I don't care. Just something so I can learn how to do this. And then my creative brain kicked in. And was like, well, I'm not gonna just make up anything whack. I might as well think of something cool, you know, that you know, in the event that people liked it, I would just do it. But it's mainly, you know, um, for this experiment. So I was like, what about some, you know? And then I did a bunch of keyword research because I was trying to nerd out and learn how to do that very well. And so I did that. And it just turns out like all these people are searching for uh, plus size swimwear and there's very few results. And so I was just like, hmm, that's interesting. I think that that sounds interesting. So I probably looked up like a hundred different really good keywords. And then, um, and then that one was like, that's the most interesting to me. I can see a story around that. And um, I think my, the common thread, a lot of things I do are different music, all these different things. Um, but the common thread through it all is I really like just telling people in like the sassiest, most gangster way, like, fuck it, do that thing. Like you got this. Like I love, there's nothing more that I love than like encouraging people and making people feel good about something that they're thinking about doing, especially um, with, with, with a little bit more edge than maybe they're even comfortable because then it allows them to feel like they can be themselves. You know, I'm clearly not perfect. They figured that out pretty fast. And so the swimwear is like that. What's interesting is having observed your, your own, like the Stephanie process on some of these things, it, it actually follows that advice too, which is you, you start, even the way you just described that, you're like, I don't care. All I want to do is learn about drop shipping. I don't care. I'm just making a shop. I don't care. And then you're like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to care. And then you create a great brand that connects with people. But that a little bit the way you initiate and get yourself going is is total like, hey, I don't care. Who cares? I'm just going for it. I don't care. I care. I'm gonna if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna care about it. I'm sh- I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to fight fear a little bit. Um, I guess I think every creative project to me is worth it, no matter how it ends. Like the creative process for me, I love it with my whole heart. Like I really enjoy it. Um and so it always give me, it gives me life, even if the thing that I come out with on the other end isn't great. So it's easy for me to rush into it. But I mean, I'm a storyteller. So I started thinking like, okay, how would I make this dope? You know, how would it connect with somebody in a real way? So I kind of fall into it um, and kind of fall in love with it in the process, I guess. And then I, I get interested in like doing it well. And then once I do that, um, that helps a lot. Now later, I have trouble, <laughs> but that initial process well, for me is, is my favorite. But I think, I mean, I think t- talk a little bit about what you dis- as you did dive into the story of the brand and the story of being, you know, women who've given birth and want to go to, you know, to the beach and look sexy in your swimsuit. Um, I tell, tell a little bit of that story of, as you, as you dove into that, what was happening? Uh, yeah. So I like, um, I had my first child two and a half years ago and i after having him first of all i was never skinny in the first place so let's just start with that because that was not who i was but <laughs> even if you are already thick you're thick listen i gotta be myself even if you are already thick 
your thickness don't look the same after a baby. Okay. I was okay with being thick, but things look different once they cut you open, pull all your organs out, put them things back in and you know, <laughs> whatever. So the point is, I'm just trying to validate the thing. Like, even if you feel great about your body and you're not a person who's insecure at all and you don't care, you work that bikini, whatever, whatever personality is after you have a kid, you're like, okay, girl, you're giving yourself pep talks. I don't care. Like, I can't remember if I'm supposed to curse or not. We should just, you should tell me. You okay, thank Jesus. Me. So the baddest bitch on the planet, she will still be trying to give herself a pep talk before she goes outside in that swimsuit. Put on a swimsuit for a woman. Even super skinny, whatever you want to think is the best body in your mind, should be the most confident. Every woman I ever met, putting on a swimsuit is vulnerable. Now, there is a time, of course, like at 22 or 23 or whatever, when you like, you know, you can eat like potato chips all day and drink beer all night. And you don't look, gain a pound in that wonderful season of life. Maybe then you're like, I got 25 bikinis and I'm about to go run out with them. But the majority of women in most of their life, even that same girl later, is like, oh God, let me go out here with this swimsuit on and try to pretend like I am confident. That is most women's story. And so I was connecting with that and um, wanted to make something that made people feel like, you know, they, 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 they can be beautiful, however they want to be beautiful. You don't have to be sexy. You don't have to be fierce. You can be just pretty. You can be cute. You can be confident, whatever it is your thing. But like going out there and doing it. And also because the truth is, and women, I think, often do this a lot more than men. Women will withhold something that they want from themselves because they think they don't deserve it. So at the core, even if you didn't just feel beautiful in the swimsuit, it's like, don't you want to swim? Doesn't everybody want to swim? We all want to get and splash in the water and have a good time. So even if you didn't feel sexy in your swimsuit, don't you just want to have a good time? So the swimsuit is just permission for you to say, you know what, I'm just going to let it go today and just have fun. Like that is really, I think, what it was. And so I'm always trying to tell people something or have a message or, I don't know, try to go deeper or something with whatever. And I I love when it's something that's not deep. It's swimsuits. When I think what, and I think SwimXL was one of, it has been one of these examples, but I think something I've observed you do a lot is you, you sort of capture your own story in a way that every, you get a lot of feedback from others that are like, that's my story. And you kind of accidentally at times create a little bit of a community around, around that shared story. It's interesting to hear you say that. Um, that's like a real outside looking in type thing. I think that, um, so one of my motivations is magic. The other one I would say is, um, just like not wanting to be un- not known. Mm. Like I'm a complicated person. I have a lot of things that contradict about my personality and yet I still want to be understood. And so I've always put a little bit of myself in whatever, uh, at least I want to. I want to put a little bit of myself always into my work to almost like leave these little breadcrumbs of who I was. I mean, I can totally understand what you're saying. What a really cool story. I mean, just even the way you describe that, I think is super powerful. It just gives you permission to go have fun. I think that might be the point of everything I ever make. (laughs) Um, Because we don't go for fun enough in life. It's like you become an adult and then you either are powerful and that's supposed to satisfy you, which I don't know if it will satisfy me. Or, or you're just like, um, you know, just like, sorry that you have so much to do. It's like, when does fun become a thing that we pursue? Like who in the world as a kid was like, I want to grow up to be whatever. And in their mind, they imagine them just like dreading every freaking day. Like to me, fun is the point because you don't get trophies in life. At the end, no matter whether you had a great time or a bad time, no matter whether you were the champion and you conquered everything or you like were totally falling apart, you die in the end. So there's no trophies, which means to me, you might as well have a good time. Well, you do get (laughs) trophies, but they're kind of lame. They don't extend your life, is my point. They don't extend your life. You and all your trophies get buried in the end. And your trophies mostly go into boxes while you're alive because they don't make actually great decoration. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I'm going to brag a little bit. Um, I went to a couple karate tournaments in sixth grade. As a a participant? Yes, as a a participant. I got first place in two of them. I got second place in one of them. But I think even for the second place, I had like a trophy that was like three feet tall. <laughs> like, like, wow, they just kind of hand these out 
everybody. <laughs> that's like Karate Kid. That must be like the only trophy that's three feet tall is, is martial arts trophies. It was so big. <laughs> I love that thing so much. But before it gets too far away from this, is that you talked about the movement of, of, of blacks and like what's happening and you're asking for equality and stuff. One thing I got it. So, I, you know, I work for Amazon and I got an email from upper management that basically, I've, and I've just never, I've never seen this in my life is that I got this email saying like, Hey, we're, we're actively hiring, you know, minorities and people of color. And so if you know anybody, I mean, they just had never said it just like that flat out. And I'm like, that's actually kind of cool. Like in the past, they've said things that are a little bit more subtle and like, Hey, you know, we're looking to, but they basically just like, Hey, if you know, anybody, people of color, let us that are like legitimate candidates, let us know. I was like, I think I like that. I think I like that they're not like tiptoeing around it. They're just really just getting at it and just saying like, hey, we actually want to, we want to take part in the solution and, um, and hire, you know, hire the best people. So anyway, I, I thought that was cool. It's really a fascinating reaction because it's like sudden, suddenly you're aware of advantage. Yeah. Because you have not been aware of it this entire time. Right. And if I were to talk about white privilege, you know, the people who get upset like that typically mm. would, would, would have, how could, what white privilege, what are you talking about? What is that? Whatever. Yeah. So in one scenario, you have an acute awareness of disadvantage. And in another, you are completely blind to it. Yeah. I don't think your issue here is really with, you know, being advantaged or disadvantaged. Your issue is with who is advantaged and who mm. is disadvantaged. Mm. And that's the reality. Well, and so, and part of the who is advantaged and who is disadvantaged is a choice versus so it's even a privileged version of advantaged and disadvantaged because you can choose which way to go versus yeah. a non-choice yeah it's wild it's funny to me when yeah. people do that but you know some people just where they're at is where they're at and they can't be yeah where their their next step is not where you're at that's true like their next step is something like that could to you could be like the most basic of empathy mm. but that's where they're at i mean i i feel like i had even just a similar you know split second reaction to that because like kind of woke if you will reaction of of reading that being like oh cool oh wait i guess i can't that doesn't help me and my friends like most of my white friends and i'm like <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's the point well it's like you've gotten like a 35 year head right. start totally. you know like, is that really a disadvantage? Like, you know, uh, they're gonna give us only like six months. This shit is not about to last for a long time. So I'm gonna go ahead and go as fast and as far as I can for the next six months to a year, however yeah. long this gap is open. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try to plant as many seeds so those bitches start growing after they close the door. And it's like, oh, my plants <laughs> are over there. I need to go over there and tend to my plants. Like, you know, like, I'm, that's what we all doing right now. We're all just like, we don't know how long this is gonna last. Let's hurry up and like <laughs> what a, I, <laughs> get all the things. Totally. It's so funny because we, we sort of act like if you make one move in a direction, you just instantly are all the way at the end. If we if I hire one person inclusively, does that mean everyone that ever works here is gonna be a minority and I'll never get to hire a person that I know again? Also, like this idea, I mean, honestly, I'm sorry, I just be shattering white people's ego sometimes because it's outrageous. <laughs> it's just true. It's just outrageous. If you've had if you've excluded like a third of your competition, how do you even know if you're the best? You don't even know. So this assumption that like bringing these other people in is gonna take your spot, maybe it was never your spot. It's just the people who should have been in that spot weren't invited to compete. Like, you ever thought about that? Major League Baseball. Exactly, or a whole bunch of other stuff. They didn't let no black people play tennis. Venus and Serena came in there whooping ass like that black people were supposed to play tennis. Like we invented Arthur Ashe. Don't forget Arthur Ashe. Don't yes, and Arthur Ashe. Sorry. I'm young. I'm young. That's my excuse. But you know what I'm saying? Like, they made it look like this is what we was meant to do. We were built for this, apparently. You know, but I'm just saying, like, there's so many things that happen mm -hmm. like that. By you know, way, it's like, you don't really know what we're good at yet. We way, who knows the first black starting quarterback in the NFL? Oh, I saw it the other day. It is on. He was for the Broncos. Oh, what was his name? He was a Bronco. Marlon Briscoe. Marlon Briscoe. Had it. I know we, I think we need to definitely head toward what you're doing right now. Yes. But I wanted to step back before SwimXL for a second and talk about the web series because I think the web series is a really good story that you have. And it's part, because part of it is about the, 
the starting and the not and the and then where you got you know the the risk taking and then not not going all the way to the finish line and all that stuff so I'd like to take a step back and talk about the web series um so I went to film school I said that I was a screenwriting major um what I wanted to do in college was write for tv um it's why I had that stint at in tv that we talked about a little bit um but that was my goal so um, I thought it would be really funny to make a web series, which web series, they kind of slowed down in popularity, I think. But there was like a moment where web series, series were like, man, maybe people are going to watch these super short formats. Um, although Quibi or whatever the name of that app yeah, is, I think they're doing that right now. So at the time I was like, this is the, the future, right? Like these little super, super short series. And there was this influx of them on the Internet that were like um, from it was just all these different stories that you would never see on TV. Um, so it was pretty cool to me. So I wanted to do something like that. And I thought it would be funny to tell a story about a social media influencer, but like tell the story of the influencer, like in a scripted, funny show. So you're seeing like the behind the scenes, you're not seeing the, like the super sexy post or whatever, the pouty lip or whatever they did. You're seeing like the fact that they like, you know, broke their toe and then they like, you know, whatever the stupid thing was, but essentially you're seeing the background story of them posing and then becoming a big deal. And uh, I just thought that'd be funny. So that was a show. It was called Lost and Found. So it's really about finding your identity in the future, not the future, but in, I guess, 2019, 2018, whenever that was. Um, and trying to like actually figure out who you are while putting this fake identity out on the internet, which is, I think, what a lot of us do. So I thought it'd be a cool story. So I um, did a casting call. I um, hired a bunch of actors. I got a video guy. I like had an editor. I did the whole thing. We like got locations. Um, we shot the first episode of the series the actors were actually really cool like like especially like one of the guys I definitely thought like you know I might actually see this dude on tv one day because he was really an incredible actor in Denver and um so we shot the first episode and um then a, my editor like got hired for like a movie and moved to LA and wasn't available and me being me I just was kind of like let it fade out and the um the hard drive is on top of my refrigerator right now Good someone point. can still edit this and save me uh but that's where it's been for like three years <laughs> I like the idea so. of your actors having all aged five years between episode one and two. <laughs> yeah that'd be interesting yeah they're all they're all, I think they all moved to LA actually except for one person they all, all like got legit jobs after that in LA which was cool because it made me feel like you know maybe I can like recruit people and maybe I'm doing it I think, you know, I helped out a little bit with that. And one of the things that was interesting was, and I'd like you to unpack this some, but this is a little bit of a vulnerable question. So you can tell me to get out of here if you want. No, but, let's go for it. But you, you were kind of like, I'm going to take over the world. I got this show. I wrote this show. And then it was like, you cast everybody. And then it was like, all of a sudden you shifted to the, after you had everybody, you, it almost was like you were wrestling with your imposter syndrome experience then. It was like before anyone else was on board, you're like, I'm crushing. And then once everyone was on board, it was like, holy crap, what have I done? <laughs> is this going to be any good? Uh, yeah, it's a trip. Is that accurate? I, I think that that's 100% right. Like that's for sure what happened. And I think I was rolling along um, because – I had just done enough of the right things that it was just like people were into it. And that was like one of the things too, that I'm, I'm starting to learn about myself and wrestling with, which is just like, I can persuade people to do just about anything if I really want to. And I don't mean that in a bad manipulative way. I mean, like, I feel like I can connect with people in a way that makes something fun. Like they enjoy the creative process. I'm in what, whatever you want, whatever we're talking about. I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> So that part for me, I get life from that because I'm just like, I'm doing my thing and like, you know, we vibe. And then when I'm in the thick of it, it's like, I don't even wake up to the fact that I've really put myself in this situation. I'm just going like it's flowing. And then I, it's like, I wake up to the fear that I should have felt long ago, but it all hits me in this one moment. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, of course I don't know what I'm doing. And that's what I've been doing this whole time. I've just been rolling with it and just like feeling my way through it. And, um, and it's like that moment is, is pretty paralyzing to be honest with you. And so I think there's been a lot of times where I was gonna, I was committed to keeping going, but then the moment I hit a barrier, I'd let it go because it was like, I didn't know where I was going anyway. This is obviously not working, so I'm done. So what have you learned about that barrier moment? I mean, regardless of whether you count yourself as, totally over it in your life 
What have you learned about that barrier moment? I'm, I'm learning that you have to just keep moving. Like the inspired, beautiful, fun, magic moments are that moments. I don't know if life is a sustained magic. I don't know if it can be. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's true. And I think some of the magic of life is you having the faith in those non-magical moments <laughs> that it still exists, you know? And I think that marriage and parenthood for me has been an example of that. Like, it's a beautiful thing. There's no doubt. It's wonderful. I wouldn't change anything about it, but it's not easy, you know? And it certainly isn't magic every moment of every day, you know? Like my kid punched me in the face yesterday. I had to put <laughs> him, this is the truth. <laughs> this is the truth. This is how this works. He's two and a half. <laughs> He punched me in the face and looked at me like, what you going to do, mommy? And I had to think about it for a second because I'm a thug. But then I just carry him down <laughs> the stairs. This, this, <laughs> I just carry him down the stairs to his room. I said, you're going to be in timeout for a little while. And I closed the door and I came upstairs. <laughs> wow, that's, right there. that's what I needed to do. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you, you do that enough times and you realize that like that magic is just like, it's not the only ingredient needed for a fantastic, wonderful quality life. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just noodling on magic. So these are thoughts. It seems like where you started was your parents creating magic, right? But you also said that they, create, they created magic by going for these things that seemed completely impossible to pull off at times. And you're talking about you know, creating a web series, which I think in some ways part of the magic of that experience for you was creating something that seemed impossible to create in a way and then it coming to fruition, yet also the fear is present in that. And I'm almost wondering, is magic, if you're the creator, is magic almost more of a retrospective experience as the creator? In the middle of it, it's actually more terrifying, but you're creating the magic for everybody else. So everybody that's jumping on board the creator's vision is experiencing magic, and the creator at least in the early days of being a creator is experiencing terror is experiencing imposter syndrome is experiencing moments yeah. of magic, but lots of fear, lots of self reflection, lots of push through. And then in retrospect, you look back and now it's magic. Yeah. I, I hope, I hope so. I think every artist hopes that that's true. Right. I, I think so. Um, I will say there are lots of um, really talented artists who've done that. Right. Who've, created albums in their pain, um, you know, who, uh, Dave Chappelle, I think is a great example. Um, Dave Chappelle, and I can't remember the person who did all the writing with him. There's a guy who was with him. Um, but anyways, they talk all the time in interviews about how much they hated creating the, the Chappelle show. Like mm -hmm. they hated it. Like it was one of the worst experiences of their life. They were so stressed out. They never slept. They, they were worried. People criticized the show so much people didn't get it, a lot of it. Um, you know, it wasn't really evaluated in a fair way from the public. Um, so even though we now look at it as this great show um, that's been created, uh, during the time, there were a lot of people who really had an issue with the show. And so they did not experience it in a positive way. They didn't even, they didn't enjoy it. The public didn't even necessarily love it. I mean, there was a great group that did, but not all of them for sure. So I do think that it's possible that, um, you can do something amazing, not in, not really enjoy the process, but yet the outcome is still pretty magnificent. I don't think that's my goal, <laughs> but I will say that if I did that, I, I'd be proud at least, but I, my goal really is to enjoy my life. I think for me, for me, I hope, I guess that magic includes uh, joy. What are you doing now that is kind of maybe taking it, a, hopefully for you, a, a step closer to what like as you keep describing is kind of that nirvana space, that magic spot. Well, um, what I've been working on recently is um, a project or a company. I think I like project sounding better, but a uh, crown hunt. And it's essentially um, a service that helps um, stylists create an income for themselves, um, especially right now in COVID, but then in the long term outside of the salon. And I think this is kind of still in development and that's, partially why it's challenging to kind of even talk about it, but I'll tell you the essence of it because that's the thing that I connect with the most. Um, and I think the essence of it really is um, trying to take an industry that probably has some of the most money generated within the black community in terms of dollars spent um, and 
make it an industry that gives back to or it puts more money back into the black community um because right now it it doesn't do that and um i think really at the core to me crown hunt is about um stimulating black economy so helping stylists that do hair right now that don't have a way to make an income make an income from teaching um but then also being able to gain the skills to be able to do the most trending hair and ultimately really um i guess innovate like the hair industry has not been innovated on in a very long time i mean there's probably i mean you're talking to three white guys who probably don't know ryan holden i I knows knows more than we do but maybe give us (laughs) he probably uh, knows more than i do uh, (laughs) i would like to nominate myself as not a novice just for the record yeah ryan finn knows a lot (laughs) maybe give a little bit more details or context to the black hair industry um because this is again something that goes back to a lot of you know things we've talked about before. I've been unaware of Ryan's told me kind of recently about it, but you're talking about it's it's an industry that generates a lot of money, but it doesn't go back into the pockets of the black community. Can you give us a little bit more detail on what is the situation uh, uh, and why that is? Yeah, so I'll talk about one element, which is just education. So uh, some things that people don't know. Um, hair school in general there are some few exceptions but if you look at the majority of hair school like 90 percent, they don't teach any classes on how to style african-american hair now you have to use different products our hair texture is very different um, some of the things that you do uh, on a white person's hair or white texture typical texture hair uh, would actually damage our hair so it does matter it's not just simply um, you know, some type of aesthetic thing. It actually matters in terms of how the hair is cared for. And so, uh, but in spite of that, these hair schools uh, do not teach any courses around that. They don't cover it at all. Like places like Aveda, large... Places like Aveda, large ones, no, they do not. It's really difficult to actually go to a formalized school that teaches about how to, how to style and care for black hair. Correct. Even the top ones that you've heard of do not do it. And the reason why I know this, because I've never been going to hair school. The reason why I know this is because when I moved to Colorado from Chicago, suddenly I had to find a hairstylist and I didn't know another black person. Now, typically you find a hairstylist from a black person. You see a girl who has gray hair, who's black, specifically black. You're not asking your white girlfriend. And you ask your black girlfriend, where did you get your hair done? And then you go to her person. That's just universally the way it works because black people know why people can't do their hair. But I didn't know that that had a deep reason. I just thought, I just knew it. You know, it was just like a thing you just know growing up and you've heard about it before. So when I moved to Colorado, I thought, oh, maybe that's just like something that is weird that people taught me that is actually not true. So I was just like, forget it. I'll just go get my hair done from a white person because, you know, I need to get my hair done. And so I, I went to, you know, three salons, four salons, five salons, and I would show up and they would look at my hair and they would say, we can't do your hair. Some of them said we can't do African hair, which I thought was funny, but they, but they like, they like, they straight up would tell me like, we can't do your hair. So I got turned away at many, many, many places. This is in Boulder. This is in Westminster. This is in Lafayette and Colorado. This is in Denver. And so at that point I got mad. And so finally in one of the shops, I just got angry and I was like, you need to explain to me why you can't do my hair. Like why? It's unacceptable. Like, why can't you do my hair? What is the reason? And that's when they were like, we didn't learn how to do your hair in school. And I was like, what? Like, I thought the person was lying to me. I thought they were just like trying to say something to, you know, get me out. So I started asking questions and finding out that like, that's actually true. So I want you to think about all these people who do black, all these black stylists in the country, you know, that's like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of them, right? They go to hair school because you got to get certified. There's like barely any way to get certified without actually just going to hair school. So that's pretty much what every certified stylist does. Each individual state has very high standards you have to meet before you can get certified. And it involves logging a lot of hours in school. So just as a, there's these things that going to hair school, not just learning, but also like just achieving these marks is required. Right. And so in order to do that, so you go to these hair schools, they don't teach you how to do the hair that's on your head or any of the people who would likely be your clientele you pay $25,000 and then you go back and do the same styles you knew how to do before. Well, that's a problem. And so um, I just thought that was so interesting. 
Um, and so the industry itself is, doesn't care about you. They haven't even considered you. They haven't even included you in the, in the education. You know what I mean? Right. So you're saying, so a black hairstylist who is, a lot of them are probably attempting or plan on, you know, styling and having a black clientele. They go to a white school to learn how to do white hair. They pay twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, or probably a lot more, in other places, and then they just have to go back to, to and learn what they did not in school to actually do mm-hmm. the job that they originally wanted to do. So they just essentially had right. to pay twenty five thousand dollars plus to learn how to do nothing, just to get certified. To get a certificate, yep, that's what they have to do, and so that doesn't make any sense. Um, and so that's just one example of the hair industry not being inclusive. The other would be hair products. If, go on a Target tomorrow. Look at the shelves in the hair aisle. You can go in the men's section. Totally fine. And you look at the look at the hair aisle. There'll be a whole aisle on both sides. It'll be hair products. There will be one row and maybe three feet wide of hair products that are for black people. I don't care if you go to the, the women's section or the men's section or whatever. And there are different products that we need. Why does that happen? And this is the, this isn't just the Denver Colorado thing, you know, where there's a lot less black people anyway in population. This is something that happens if I go in Chicago. Um, and so that's, that makes no sense. So it's just a completely neglected group. Um, and uh, that means there's lots of money to be made there, obviously. But, and then also all the experts are already black women. So what if we created tech to essentially enable this market that is ripe for innovation and platform to actually be in one place? Incredible, right? And, and, then, and just enabling a lot of, of black owned businesses, right? I mean, that, I think mm-hmm. that's some of what's cool is you're unlocking, you know, these, these businesses that are owned by the stylist or owned by a group of stylists. Right. And then how much more could their businesses, you know, develop if they had platform and technology in order to enhance what they do? Because you have to think like these are industries that really haven't gotten a lot of tools even created for them to innovate. They don't have the same things that we have. Like the reason why we can create this podcast is because of a whole bunch of stuff that was created to enhance your ability to do this at home, low budget, with a few tools that you can afford. You know, like that is that hasn't happened in this space. Um, and so I'm really looking at it and interested in it in general, like the entire market. Um, but right now it feels like a good place to start is in um, these black stylists being able to teach, especially because there's that gap in education that's out there. It feels like what if they could teach each other and create income for themselves outside of the salon, but essentially kind of filling in the gap that the hair school um, isn't providing. For those of us out here in the world that aren't black women, will you define crown for us? Oh, Lord. That's really something. Well, it's sacred. We can start with that. Um, uh, the black woman's hair is like, first of all, it's been politicized. So there's, there's, there's like a reason why there's such an attachment to, to it because black women's hair is rebellion for a really long time. Um, you know, black women were chemically straightening their hair. Um, I don't think that that's bad. I'm not here to say that that's, that's necessarily bad, but there's a lot of chemicals in that that aren't really good for you. And the truth of the reason why we were straightening our hair is because we were told that our natural hair and our thickness, you know, this ain't mine, it still looked like it could be. Um, that, like, we were, we were told that that was wild and unkempt and, um, you know, not professional. And, and it, but it grows out of our heads. So the thing that grows out of your head is professional and dignified. And the thing that grows out of my head is wild and unkempt what's the difference really. And so because of that, um, there's been a movement probably in the last 10 to 15 years, I think where black women have been um, passionate, almost religious about wearing their natural hair texture as rebellion essentially against a society that has told you that you're not beautiful. And it has happened because of the current political climate and everything else, but it's also happened um, because in fashion, uh, fashion, uh, different brands started publishing these fashion um, photography shoots that had women, white women with like cornrows or white women with an afro or like all these textures and hairstyles that we naturally would wear. And it was considered unsophisticated, but now it's on the cover of Vogue. That starts to make, wake you up a little bit. And you're like, wait a minute. So you don't think that it's unsophisticated. You actually think it's cool, cool enough to be on the cover of Vogue but only if she has it. So there is like this, this like um, 
it became um, a statement that was bigger than who I am as an individual. It's like connecting with my ancestors almost. So it's my crown. It's my reminder that um, you can do whatever you want in terms of uh, limit limiting my life, but uh, my royalty is within. I mean, I think, Jen, real quick, just a serious point on that. I think for sure as white folks in this modern conversation, on average, we are not taking responsibility for our own learning enough. And we're putting a lot of responsibility on our on our friends of color to teach us. And instead of like doing our own research and doing our own work, reading entire books beginning to end, we're calling up our friends and putting a lot of pressure on them to do a really good job of communicating about their own feelings, communicating about an entire people group's feelings, communicating about history. And I think we got to do the work. We got to show up better when we're asking friends of our questions and asking questions of our friends, instead of asking basic questions, let's go do the work, get educated, and then ask better questions of our friends. Cause it's put a lot of pressure on our friends of color um, as white folks, when we're going to them with every single thing. I appreciate you saying that. I think that it's been a lesson for all of us. Like I have not been asked the kind of questions that I have um, this past six months as I did any other year in my life. I've never been asked these like really empathetic questions because when black people are together, typically we aren't pontificating about racism. We, it's too hard. It's too personal. It's like, if you got a bunch of people together whose parents were all abusive, they wouldn't be sitting around talking about the abuse. We understand each other better because of the abuse, but it's hard. We don't want to talk about it. And that's kind of how it's been. And so now you're peeling back this whole thing that hasn't really been uncovered, you know, by asking these empathetic questions, like, how did they make you feel? It's like, shit, I haven't even thought about that. I've been so busy trying to bury the feeling just so I can survive. I haven't considered how I feel. And now that you ask me, I don't know. And I need to unpack that and figure that out. And so I think that that's part of it too, is that it's not just like asking questions bombards me. It's like, you're literally, it's like, it's like the abuse scenario I gave you. It's like, if you were to just casually just be like, we talking about Kardashians and then you're just like, yeah. So tell me about that time your dad abused you. He's like, holy shit. Like, I'm not ready for that. Uh, like that's, yeah. that's really, and by the way, my dad is a great man. That did not happen. But you know, like, <laughs> you know, like that's so deep. Like that's just so like, wow you've taken me to such a dark place yeah. in that moment it's not ca it's not casual is what you're saying no it's not i think if, if like you're in the middle of a game like a, you're playing football steph you know what i'm talking about you're playing football and you sprain your ankle you can actually stay in the moment let the adrenaline run ignore it and fight through but if somebody stops you in the middle of the game to be like ryan does the ankle hurt? And <laughs> yeah. I start thinking about it. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like grinning and grinning and bearing it for the rest of the game yeah. becomes actually yeah. impossible because I've like, I'm unpacking the wound and I'm digging into the wound when I was just in survival mode. I was in grin and bear it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. And then all of a sudden you tell me to think about it and it's like, Oh my gosh, it hurts so bad. And also like, by the way, I hurt. will not win this game now. <laughs> Right. Now that you've ripped me apart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough, but I do think it's necessary. I think that what we're doing right now is important, you know? So I don't think, I think you have to just know your own friends and, and you know where to go and where not to go. You know, there's friends that you have that are really open in general and you can kind of go there with them. And there's ones who are a lot more private. So use the same intelligence and wisdom and discernment you would use in any other circumstance, I think. But you also have to really have a close friendship and you have to really approach it from a place of like we are ready to go there. You can't casually drop that on me. We got to have time to talk about that because it's deep and I might get emotional and you got to be ready for that. You know what I mean? Like, don't just take me there and I'll be ready to go there, you know, and certainly by, by, for God's sake, do not come prepared to debate. I don't want to debate anybody. I don't have time for that. Save that for your white friends. Y'all can debate all day long. I know what it feels like. I don't need to debate you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that, um, you know, that's, those are the important things to consider, but it's really, it's really healthy. I'm so glad that we are asking these questions. I'm so glad that I'm asking myself these questions. It's gonna take me a long time though, to figure out this season. Mm. Mm. Long time. I don't think this is, it's one of those years, I think for everybody, certainly Americans. I think this is a year where you look like you still thinking about it 10 years from now. 
you're still processing what happened in you, around you. How did you react? Like, it's going to be a long time. I think we might be closing-ish. Something I try to ask guests about uh, stuff is in Jake's pursuit of finding his thing, you've uh, recounted so many passion projects that you've followed. Um, I'm wondering what advice you would have for Jake as he continues to explore where his passion might take him or, you know, where this podcast might go. What advice would you have for Jake as he uh, explores that further? Let me, re- let me reframe that question. You said, <laughs> you said a, sec- a, while, a while ago about how you like giving people pep talks. <laughs> you used some really cool language that I, that I don't remember and it'd sound weird if I said it. Started with an F Yeah. <laughs> also, Jake's going by cake these days. So we no, know I'm not going by cake. <laughs> anyway, so answer his question, but make it a pep talk. Oh, I like that. I like Preach. that. Okay, okay, I can do that. All right, so here's the thing. You clearly want to do Mm -hmm. it, right? Because if you could, like, get rid of this nagging, annoying thing that's just like, hey, you should do something more than what you're doing. Hey, you should do something more than what you're doing. If you could get rid of that shit, you would have done it already because it's driving you crazy. I know because I feel like that every single day. So if you can't get rid of this nagging thing, you might as well go see what it has to teach you and just keep going. Mm. You know, like even after you feel like I'm at that point in many ways all the time and like we should do this again in like three months because I will need to give you that pep talk because it will be for me. <laughs> I, like I, I, I feel it. I can feel in my body like it's like, hey, we're getting closer to that point where you always like jump off the tracks. You want to do that again? And I'm like, no, bitch, shut up. I'm not doing it this time. Like, you know, I just be talking to myself. You know, you have to do it. Um. But I just, you know, I, I keep wanting to see what happens if I don't stop. And so I'm going to try to tell myself that every time I get that feeling. And I'm also trying to hold, get other people around me that can hold me accountable. So even saying this on this podcast that will be recorded so I can listen to it and torture myself with it later. Uh, this is all good. So keep t- saying what you're going to do on this podcast. And it might just make you have, uh, your ego might be big enough to, to keep you from lying that's that was good but i there wasn't enough cursing and like you know <laughs> really just real quick on that pep talk though sure i listened to a podcast interview of cheryl Strayed recently recently she's the author of that of the book wild which got turned in the to the reese witherspoon movie she's a obviously successful author she has a friggin movie um and she was talking about how every single book is a struggle in imposter syndrome and coaching herself through it and pep talking herself through it. And the, here she is a prolific writer and yet every project is continuing to be that battle with, you know, those same things. And so the reality is pursuing your passion project is probably a consistent battle with that until you become Kanye West. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be tortured anyway, you might as well pick the torture that uh, at least has a chance of delighting you. Yeah. And it's certainly not going to be sitting on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Right. You're gonna be tortured. You may as well pick the right kind of torture, and that's magic. Magic. <laughs> Steph, thank you. This has been on a lot of levels, really, really good. And so, from, I mean, I, I, I don't know how genuinely I can say this. Thank you for just sharing just so many different things, experience, culture, um, especially just in the social justice movement that we're having right now. Like this has been incredibly valuable, and uh, thank you. Just really, really thank you. This thank has been you. Awesome. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Interesting Lives of Normal People. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating and tell your friends. It really helps new people find us. Thanks again to Stephanie for chatting with us and also providing us with her music, this music. You can find more of her music as the artist Huga on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.